Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We Christians assume that God's love is unconditional and that it is never too late to change our ways. Although comforting, this idea contradicts the story of the Bible. Yes, it's true God is patient. In fact, he is so patient in the Bible that by the time you get to the New Testament, his patience is running out. In each of his letters, St. Paul repeats a stern warning. You were given an opportunity to repent, and you failed. You are now on your second chance. Be wary. The Lord is coming soon for the third and final time, and it will not be a charm. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 141 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have come to the unlucky chapter, or the lucky chapter, depending on your perspective. I'm not a superstitious man, but if I were, 13 would be my lucky number. This is the third time that Paul is coming to the church in Roman Corinth in this letter, And while in American parlance, three times is a charm, in scripture, three times means you're out of time. This is already the second time that he's saying that this is the third time he's coming. So he's really emphasizing this point. This is the third time. And like you always say, Father, when you need your kid to come, you need to be here on the count of three. One, two, and if I get to three, it's going to be big trouble. Two and a half. Right. Oh, and you're here. Okay, excellent. We didn't have to make it to three because you knew the bad was going to happen at three. So Paul is saying this is the second time that I'm telling you I'm coming for the third time. You shall not hear me say this is the third time until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this whole letter is two and a half. <laughs> This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So even this statement is underscoring the function of three in 2 Corinthians because the third time is the deciding vote. You cannot break a tie with only two people. Two witnesses are not enough. You need to bring a third. So when Paul comes to examine them, that is akin to the third vote, the third witness that makes it clear whether they're in or out. So the first time he came, they were very excited. They loved Paul. They loved the message. And they were all on board. The second time he came, everything was a shambles. Everything was falling apart. They were arguing with him. They were looking down on him. They were wondering if he was really what he was cracked up to be. Now, the third time is going to be the deciding vote. Are they the people that I met with the first time and they were just having a bad day the second time? Or were they all just very excited on the first time and showing their true colors on the second time? The third time, I'll get a chance to see 
What are they really like? What are their true colors going to be? I have previously said, when present, the second time. And though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. So he's stretching out the second chance. One way or another, if I come again, there's no escape for you. He's explaining the one, two, three paradigm. When I was here in the second time, I told you I was going to come again a third time, and you better have your act together. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So, they want proof that God is powerful. Paul's going to show them. That is a threat. He is not bragging that Christ is mighty in the Corinthians as though the Corinthians are mighty. He's saying you don't believe that God is powerful. You don't believe that the Son of Man is coming seated at the right hand of power. You're going to find out when I come for the third time. They still think in worldly terms. He sounds so powerful in his letters, but he seems so uninteresting when he actually is here. This is the temptation when looking at the crucified one that, oh, he wasn't as strong as we thought. Uh, I guess Jesus is kind of a wimp. And so then people understand Jesus as a wimp, and then they're devoted to the God of wimpiness, and then they themselves become wimps. What Paul is saying is, no, no, when I came and I was meek, you should not understand that as me being a wimp. And just in case you think I was being a wimp and that I am a wimp, I will show you that I and Christ are no wimps. You have to know the Psalms to understand what Paul is doing here. Beginning with Psalm 2, it's clear as day after we've heard that you have to walk in the way of God's precepts in Psalm 1. In Psalm 2, God is presented as a bully, surrounded by bullies. And you have to choose which bully to ally yourself with. And a wise man chooses the one who subdues all the other kings on the earth. The sun and the right hand of that king in Psalm 2 is coming to you in power. You cannot fall in the trap of saying, therefore, Paul is teaching us to be a wimp. No, he's saying, don't be fooled by what you see. It's an anti-idolatry message. Don't idolicize weakness. Don't idolicize strength. You have to idolicize the anti-idol of the proposition of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is there to undermine whatever ideology, any idol that you have, because God is the one in control of everything. And even what appears to be God abandoning Jesus is actually a show of God's strength. When Paul says that Christ is mighty in you, O Corinthians, what he's saying is that the power of Jesus Christ is manifest in his conquering of you. This is how Christians have to understand the Eucharistic seal, Jesus Christos Nika. He is a conqueror, and you are the one being conquered. You are the bullies that he's going to bully in Psalm 2. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Again, just as in the prophets... God directs his power against the king in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is directing the power of God through Jesus Christ 
against the Gentile church in Roman Corinth. God shows his strength through his provision and through taking care of others. Whatever God is providing is out of his goodness. Now, to human eyes, it may seem bad. When Jesus is crucified, it obviously appears bad to human eyes. It appears weak to human eyes. But in fact, for God, it is good and it is strong. Why is this? Because it completely rejects human alternatives where humans try to provide for themselves and humans try to protect themselves and humans try to make themselves strong because it will always end futilely. It will always end in their death. Yes, he was crucified because of weakness because Jesus allowed himself to be weak. Yet he lives because of the power of God. So what Jesus did is he submitted all of his power and rights and strength in worldly terms as the son of God to God to allow God to do whatever he wants. Normally the human being says, I am the son of God. So since God is on my right shoulder, you have to listen to everything that I say. You have to do everything that I do. And he becomes a tyrant. And this is the power. And this is what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to give up because we are weak in him in that we submit completely and give all our power over to him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God toward you because the power of God gives you power over Caesar himself because you no longer recognize these human power structures that ultimately end in your death. So this reminds me of the function of the spirit in the gospels because the spirit can be something that brings calm like a cool breeze that soothes you or the spirit can come as a mighty wind and rip your town up and destroy it. And that's how Jesus functions here. He can come to you as someone who's weak and meek and mild. But you better never forget that his weakness is grace. And in the blink of an eye, he can turn around and assume his power against you for your sake, which is how Paul is functioning in the letter. A true parent keeps the kid on edge. You're friendly and respectful to your child, but at any moment you could strike. And children need that kind of structure for their sake. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Do you actually believe that Christ was resurrected in power? Do you not see that Jesus Christ can be in you? You know, If you believe that you are trusting, then Jesus Christ is in you, not in this fuzzy way where your souls come together as one in your heart, but where the teaching of submission to God, even to the crucifixion, will give you the opportunity to have the life that he has, as long as you pass the test that you actually trust. But let's be honest. Let's not fall in the trap of imagining the best when we're hearing the worst. They've already failed the test. They've already failed. They judged their teacher they sent in feedback forms, even when he said, I don't want your feedback forms. And then they were jealous of each other. They caused strife. They were angry. There was disputes. They were lying and slandering and gossiping about each other. So when Paul is saying, examine yourself, it's sarcasm. He just told them they failed. So that's all the more reason why you should be afraid. Paul in chapter 13 is doing what everyone hates in the modern world. He's just being mean. He is just manifesting the power that he hopes will scare them enough to put them in the right frame of mind for the bridegroom's appearance. And the bridegroom will appear when Paul appears. 
because the bridegroom is the child, as Chrysostom says, that Paul is carrying in his arms. It's the gospel teaching. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. You're not allowed to judge me, but in case you're still allowing your adulterous and sinful Corinthian brain to imagine that you can have an opinion about me, let me remind you, I passed the test. Relax. And this is the basic test to see if you're teachable or not. Do you believe that you know everything and the teacher is questionable? If that's the case, you can't learn. You're stuck. So if you believe that you have Jesus Christ in yourself and are wondering whether Paul has the power of Jesus Christ in himself, there's no hope. If you believe, uh, you know, I do need to think more about whether Jesus Christ is in me because my actions are not reflecting this, you cannot wonder whether Paul actually has the teaching of Jesus Christ in him or not. Once you question that, you're lost. There's no more hope for you. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. In other words, in the end, I'm not doing this for me, and I don't care what I get out of it. I explained it to you that way so that you would understand the implication of your actions towards others. But I'm your father. I don't care what happens to me. I care about you. So it's this beautiful monologue of a mom or a dad scolding the child and explaining to them that it's for their sake. I'm doing this so that you do the right thing. Whether you think what I do is tough or weak or mean or nice, whatever you think about what I'm doing, I'm going to tell you the reason why I'm doing it. I don't want you to fail the test. I want you to do what's right. You might not approve of us, whatever, as long as you're doing the right thing. As soon as you judge us, you can't do the right thing. So I hope you don't go that direction. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. And this is an important statement, because if you are scriptural, you understand that it is impossible to oppose scripture. You can either submit to scripture and then work for the truth of scripture, or you can reject it. But nothing you do can change the truth of scripture because it is linked to the truth of the way the world works. You can't argue with it. It's not a philosophical argument. Philosophers, politicians, and theologians can lay out an argument Point one, two, three, conclusion. You can question their presupposition. You can say they're being illogical. You can say you disagree. That's why all of that is straw, as Aquinas said, needs to be burned. You cannot argue with scripture because it's elemental. It's fundamental. It's not an opinion. When Jesus explains that if you slap someone, they'll slap you back, it's not an opinion. You can't disagree with that. Even those who reject it make its message more powerful. If Paul himself rejects the gospel, it only makes the gospel more strong because it can show those who reject it. Look at the Old Testament. The whole story is about everybody rejecting and working against God's word. What the gospel does, it takes something that you cannot argue with. I mean, true, not philosophically true. True in the practical sense of truth. Meaning that if you're thirsty and you drink water, it will quench your thirst. This is true. It takes something this simple and straightforward and it uses it to fight with you and to fight with you and to fight with you. 
And the more you argue, the more it deconstructs you until you accept or reject it. But at the same time, the more it proclaims the truth, the simple truth of the gospel, it can't lose. Even if you burn every Bible ever in print and erase the memory of the Bible from the cosmos, the fact remains that if someone is thirsty and they drink water, they will no longer be thirsty. That is the system. And the beauty of it is that even if you decide to reject it, it can explain the rejection because Here's the thing, Paul is trying to get people to understand things differently because there's a deeper truth in the world that if you understand that power of life is stronger than the power of death, you can accept that and have power over the power of death. Or you can reject it, submit yourself to the power of death, and you're going to die anyway. Even if you're Israel who rejects God's word, God can show to the next generation their rejection then becomes a lesson. Ezekiel 16 uses the same thing. You saw Sodom, what happened when she rejected. You saw Israel when she rejected. So Judah, what's the plan? Even the rejection strengthens the message. You cannot argue with the way things work. Paul's presupposition is that what he is saying comes from the one who made the heavens and the earth. Are you going to explain to the one who made the heavens and the earth how the heavens and the earth function? You can't. And do you think they will cease to operate the way they do just because you reject the word of the one who made the heavens and the earth? This is the sheer stupidity and the sheer arrogance of the human being in Roman Corinth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Strong means that you are strong in your belief, strong in your trust of the truth, strong in your trust that God will provide, and that the power of life is stronger than the power of death. Complete here is a very important word because it is tied to the third appearance of Paul. That's when everything will be complete. He is trying to equip you for his third appearance with the only teaching that can equip you, which is the wisdom that he is bringing to you the second time. So do you trust this wisdom? And if you do, it will prepare you and you will be complete for the work of the gospel. If you don't trust it, I will still complete the situation and judge you. One way or another, the third time Paul comes, which is the unwritten chapter in this book, is going to make everything finished once and for all. If I know that by making ourselves weak, you become strong and you end up strong, then I know you're prepared. Then I see you're equipped. Then I know that there is no chink in your armor. And I know that your trust in God's provision is complete. Catharticis, preparing or an equipping. If you're getting ready for battle, you need to have your complete preparation done. You need to complete your preparation. So they play with each other in English. But I think focusing on the preparation, the equipping, being made ready, this is what he's focusing on. Once I see that you're strong, I know that you're ready. So test yourself. You guys, go have your own scrimmage. You don't need coach there to have the scrimmage and see if you guys are going to fall. I know you guys have not been practicing. I know you guys are terrible. So you guys need to be ready because when I come, it, the real game is going to start and then we'll see what you're made of. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. This means, once again, I don't want to crush you, but I will crush you any time. 
And when he says building up, he means tearing down what is worldly. And when he says tearing down, he means building up what is godly. So hear it in the inverse. Don't take it as though he's going to come and pat you on the back. If that's what you expect, you have no idea what scripture is talking about and you can't be saved. Well, and the other thing is we make this assumption that if he's mean, he's tearing down. We can't make the assumption that when he's being mean, he's tearing down. He's being mean to build them up. He's being mean so that they actually become stronger. They actually learn. The only right that Paul has is to teach. But Paul is going to use every arrow in his quiver to teach them. And if he comes and he writes mean and he can come and be nice, great. But if he writes mean and they ignore him, he's going to come and be mean. But all he has the ability to do is to teach them. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That is a threat. Because if the God of peace is with you, that means that the third time has already come. So you hope that when the God of peace appears, that the peace for you will be that you are welcomed as a faithful servant in Matthew 25. But there's a very good chance that when the God of peace appears and sets everything according to his peace, you will be left outside the kingdom where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because the peace is the settling of all of the squabbling you were doing in chapter 12. Paul is saying if you stop squabbling when the God of peace appears, he won't have to crush your squabbling. So choose. You can amend your behavior on your own or you will be amended. That's the double-edged sword of this word that's translated as complete in English. If the one who comes to establish peace does not find peace, he has to make peace happen. There will be peace. The only question you have to ask yourself is what side of the peace you will be on. It's like a Western. Someone's going to make peace. But what does that mean? I mean, we have this in the Minor Prophets where God comes to bring peace and wants to bring everybody together into a single community. But there are people who don't want to be part of that community of the gospel. And those people melt. They melt away. Because when we hear God of peace, we want to hear, oh, God is a God of nice. Nice and peace are not the same thing. Because there can be nice with no peace. And there can be peace with no nice. Submitting is not nice, but it brings peace. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a beautiful touch. He's saying, look, you're going to kiss each other. We're going to find out if you're faithful or if you are traitors. Greet each other with a kiss. All the saints greet you. So now we're going to find out whether you're going to honor the saints or betray them. The kiss in scripture is a test. Anytime someone expresses loyalty or humility, you have to watch to see how it plays out in the narrative. As I pointed out recently at St. Elizabeth, and I pointed out in my book, just because Peter says, don't bow before me, does not mean that Peter does not fancy himself a god in the eyes of the people. You have to look at what's going on in the story, because Peter is being judged as to whether or not he's going to be faithful to what his commitment was in the story. That's why he's presented as the betrayer in the Gospels. The church in Roman Corinth is going to be tested to see whether they're faithful 
to all the saints who have gone before them. And to all the saints, remember, saint doesn't mean someone who died here in Paul's letters. To all the saints and all the other churches, are you going to betray Macedonia? Are you going to betray Paul and his co-workers? Greet each other with a holy kiss. You can greet each other with a kiss that is not holy. A holy kiss is one that's done in submission. That's the only way that one can be holy in the eyes of the gospel. If you are complete, comforted, like-minded, and in peace, then your kiss is going to be holy. If it is not, then your kiss, if it happens at all, if you do bother to greet each other, it's going to be one of oppression, a sign of strength, a sign of maybe even humiliation, or something like this, but in earthly terms. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a trademark statement in Paul's letters, similar to his other admonition in the letter to Timothy, till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, because he's ending with grace. This is a hallmark of Father Paul Tarazzi's scholarship on the Pauline corpus. It's something that we've referred to many times in different places. Paul ends with grace because the God of peace hasn't appeared yet. The day of peace is not upon us yet, so there's still time for you. You can still walk according to the Holy Spirit. You can still love the Father of Jesus, and you can still receive the grace of Jesus Christ. I hope the grace will be with you all. We'll see what ends up happening. Take care, Dr. Bento. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.